Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. And though I have the privilege of uh, standing here and, and preaching on occasion and even training uh, some other leaders in our congregation to preach, my full-time job is actually ministering to college students. And once, a number of years ago, I was reaching out to a student, a non-Christian student at Bucknell University where I was serving. And there was this student who was pretty skeptical toward Christianity. He thought that it was rather convenient that Jesus didn't come to earth in our generation. He came all those years ago because, according to the student back then, there was no way for anyone to prove that Jesus raised from the dead. Whereas if he had been around today, there are lots of ways that we could have proved it. And I asked him, really? If he was here today and he had been raised from the dead, what would constitute credible proof to you that he actually rose from the dead? And he said, well, if we got him on video camera, that would prove that he rose from the dead. And I answered him, really? That would prove it. I mean, my buddy, Dan Miller, who's not here today, he makes videos about his wife and his baby getting blown up by rockets. <laughs> you can do anything with videos. You can do absolutely anything. Why would that warrant co- credible proof with as easy it is it, as it is to doctor a video? But you see, this guy thought that for something to be true, he had to see it with his own eyes. He had to see it. Now, this guy was so intelligent and much more so than me, that I don't want to insult him by reducing his arguments to something absurd so that I can look better and have a good sermon illustration here today while he's not here to defend himself. So I don't at all mean to make him sound stupid. But he was very clear that he wanted to see it. He wanted to see something to believe it. And so there's this foundational question for us to address and to understand. That question is, how do we know what is true? How do we know what is true? Because if we're limited, if we limit ourselves to our own sense perception, I think we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. I'll give one example. In 2001, Penn State football coach Mike McQuarrie saw Jerry Sandusky in a locker room with a boy. And when he saw what was going on, he didn't believe his own eyes. He saw it, but he didn't believe it because what he saw was so far from what he believed to be true about Coach Sandusky, he didn't think that what he saw was really true. It couldn't have been. I must have misunderstood. I must not have seen what really happened. If we're limited to our own sense perception, we are in big trouble. We commonly interpret what we see based on what we believe. Seeing is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But believing is better. And so today I'd like to ask, will you interpret what you see based on what God says is true? And in addition, will you believe what you can't see even or because God says it's true. Will you believe what you can't see because God says it's true? Here's the main point of this passage from John 20 that we're going to look at. 
You can see it at the top of your outlines. The main point is that those who saw Jesus reported his message of forgiveness so you and I would believe and have life. We are uh, in John chapter 20. If you need a Bible or a pen, you can raise your hand. Becca will come around and, and help you uh, because you'll probably want to follow along. If you have one of the church Bibles, we're on page 590. We've been studying through the Gospel of John, and we are coming to the end. Here we are at the end of chapter 20. I'm going to start reading at verse 19, which is on page 590. But let me pray before I read it. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for the time in your word. Thank you for telling us what is true. And thank you for giving us evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, that we could believe in him and have life. Thank you for sending your apostles to report what they saw with their own eyes, that we might hear their message and have our sins forgiven. We pray that you would help us to believe even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. And I want to start out with the point that many saw and believed. Many saw and believed. We see this in verses 19 through 23. This is a, a pretty important point. We've hit this point for a few weeks now. It's difficult to overstate the importance of this point because Christianity is based in eyewitness testimony of historical fact. 
No other religion in the world hangs everything on a single verifiable event. Many saw and believed. This has been a major point for John in the last two chapters. Back in chapter 19, verse 34, he said, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, he's referring to himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John said, I saw the spear go in his side. I saw the life flow out of him, and I'm telling you the truth that you may believe. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. This is John talking about himself again in verse 5. He saw the linen cloths. Verse 6, he talks about Peter. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. In verse 8, John again enters the tomb. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Verse 12, and she saw, this is Mary at the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And verse 18, Mary's essential message that she delivered to the other disciples was, I have seen the Lord. The, this section of Jesus' death and resurrection is saturated with testimony of people who saw the evidence. They saw the death. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the angels. They saw Jesus standing there. The word see is repeated often, followed closely by the word believe. Now, here we are in verse 19, and the disciples are locked in a room for fear of what the Jews might do to them. Because the Jews took Jesus out, they could take the disciples out too. And so in verse 19, Jesus comes and he stands among them. And in verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And in verse 25, the main message of these 10 disciples to Thomas, who is not there, is, we have seen the Lord. So they saw Jesus showed himself. They go to Thomas. They say, we've seen him. And these things made them glad. It says in verse 20, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So what is it that they saw and believed that made them glad? There are four things. Have them on your outline. What did they see and believe that made them glad? Four truths. The first truth that they saw was that the Lamb of God was accepted by God. The Lamb of God was accepted by God because Jesus, in verse 20, showed them his hands and his side. He's there before them, right in front of their eyes, as a lamb standing as if slain. He was the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb put on the altar, put on the cross, who died as a substitute for God's people to take on their sins so they wouldn't have to die. And he came back to tell them about it. 
and he says, look at my wounds. Check this out. I died, and now I'm back. And the point was, God accepted the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Children, we talk a lot about how Jesus died. I have a really important question for you. Did Jesus really die, or is that just a story that we tell? Sort of like Winnie the Pooh. Emma, he died? Are you sure? What do you think? He died? He died? He died. How do you know that he died? The Bible says so. That's right. Because we have... We have people who saw him when he came back and they told us about it and they wrote it down and we can trust their testimony. Good job, children. The Lamb of God was accepted by God and the Lamb of God dying and coming back to life. This was the fulfillment of many predictions that even Jesus and others in this book of John have made all along. You you have to get this. You have to get the fact that this was not an accident. This was on purpose, and this was the plan all along, and Jesus is coming back to show them. Let me show you. In chapter 1, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it up. In chapter 3, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he was talking about being lifted up on a cross. In chapter 4, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In chapter 5, He said, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Chapter six, he said, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. In chapter seven, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In chapter eight, he says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. In chapter 9, he said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Chapter 10, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And in chapter 12, he said, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I could keep going. Every chapter, every story of this gospel is focused on Jesus' death and resurrection and how those who trust in his death and resurrection will receive life. Because God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for the sin of the world. That's the first truth, the first thing that the disciples saw and believed. And that truth leads to three more truths. Because God accepted this sacrifice, letter B, there is now peace between God and men. There is now peace between God and men. In chapter 20 here in our passage, in verse 19, when Jesus comes and he stands among them, the message he brings to them, the first words out of his mouth are, peace be with you. And then again in verse 21, 
He says it a second time. Jesus said, peace be with you. And he'll say it again in verse 26 to Thomas, peace be with you. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, peace is now with you. You are no longer at war with God. You have nothing to fear, even though they are afraid of the Jews and they feel like locking the doors. And Jesus is back to judge but not to destroy. He came back from the dead to judge, but not to destroy. He came back to pronounce the judgment, not guilty. You are not guilty and you have peace with God forever. If you trust in me. That's the second thing that the disciples saw and believed and that made them glad. I hope it makes you glad. Letter C, the third thing, they saw and believed was that the Holy Spirit can now come. Because the Lamb of God was accepted by God, the Holy Spirit can now come. In verse 22, when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is giving them a picture. He's foreshadowing the day of Pentecost, which was a feast that was going to take place 40 weeks later, I think, or 50 weeks, or sorry, 40 or 50 days later. When, when the Holy Spirit would actually come on them in fullness and power. Here Jesus is picturing that by breathing on them and he's showing them that they can receive the Holy Spirit. He's already explained this to them. Let me remind you, in chapter 14, he talked about this Holy Spirit. Verse 25, Jesus said, this was before he died, he said, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus in chapter 20 is reminding them of what he said in chapter 14 by breathing on them and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. He's telling them, here is your promise of peace. The way you know you have peace with God is because the Holy Spirit will come on you and will remind you of everything I've told you that I have life available for you. That's the third thing. The Holy Spirit can now come. Letter D, the fourth thing that the disciples saw and believed that made them glad was that because the Lamb of God was accepted by God, forgiveness of sin is now possible. Forgiveness of sin is now possible. In verse 23, Jesus said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus entrusts the disciples with the power to forgive or retain sin. This is really important for us to understand because it's really easy to get this wrong. Because he said in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So I came as the Father's representative. I'm now sending you as my representative. I came with the words of the Father. I spoke nothing but the words of the Father. I did the works of the Father. Now I'm sending you to speak my words and to do my works in the world. And as you do so, you have the power to forgive or retain sin. Here's what this power is not, however. 
This power to forgive or retain sin is not some kind of authoritarian, whimsical, arbitrary power where they can sit in basilicas wearing funny hats and deciding who is in and who is out. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the power to be his arms and legs in the world preaching his message. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. He says this, you, you disciples who follow me have authority to declare the following. You have authority to declare that anyone who believes this message, that I died and rose so that I could give life to the world to any who believes on me, if you, if you declare that message and people believe it, their sin will never be held against them. But if you declare that message, anyone who doesn't believe it still has their sin and that sin will be held against them on the last day. How does all of this apply? Friends, I now proclaim to you that if you trust in Jesus for your life, if you set your hope on his death and resurrection and not your own life and your own good deeds, then your sin is forgiven. But if you do not believe, if you do not think Jesus is who he said he was or, he, or you don't think he did what he said he did, then your sin is still on yourself and you need to find your own way to take care of it. And it's going to take you a long time to clean that up. How else does this apply? Eyewitnesses provided the testimony to us that Jesus is who he said he was. There's evidence if you want it. There's eyewitness evidence and there is assurance that you can be made right with God, that they saw the Lamb of God who was accepted by God to bring peace, to give us the Holy Spirit and to forgive our sins. Friends, you don't need to do anything except not try to earn these things for yourself. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and trust in him. Many saw and believed. That's the eyewitness testimony. Let's move on to number two. Some wouldn't believe without seeing. Though many saw and believed, some wouldn't believe without seeing. We see this in verses 24 through 28. Verse 24, Thomas missed. We find out that he missed that first appearance of Jesus in the previous verses. In verse 25, the other disciples came to him with the message, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas refuses to believe unless he sees for himself. He wants to see the marks in Jesus' hands. He wants to put his finger in the marks of Jesus' hands, and he wants to put his hand in Jesus' side where the blood and water had flowed. So in verse 26, Jesus shows up again eight days later. They were inside again. The doors were locked again. Jesus came and stood among them again. Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus again brings the message of peace, even to doubting Thomas. And in verse 27, this is fascinating. Jesus offers himself to Thomas for examination. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This fascinates me because Jesus is not threatened by Thomas's doubts. 
And if Jesus is not threatened by doubts or by objections, then neither should we be. What's remarkable about Thomas's perspective, actually, is that I really think he wants to believe. His doubts are not the doubts of unbelief necessarily, but the doubts of faith. It's almost as though what he's hearing from the others is too good to be true. How could that be possible? Why do I think that? I think that for a few reasons. One is because we have seen many, 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 many people in this book who saw Jesus and still didn't believe. So seeing is not necessarily going to lead to believing. There have been many who saw Jesus, who heard his words, who saw his works and still refused to believe. And here's Thomas, who's not looking for reasons to disbelieve. He wants help to believe. And those others who have seen Jesus, they're not asking to see Jesus' wounds. That's one reason. The other reason why I think Thomas's doubts are the doubts of faith is because at least the way John tells the story here, Thomas didn't even need to do his physical examination in order to believe. Jesus offers himself and Thomas answers in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He didn't even need to put his fingers in the holes. He didn't need to put his hand in the side. Jesus just shows up and Thomas replies with faith, at least according to how John chose to tell the story. I think Thomas wanted it to be true. He just needed some help. But what's the point for us? How does this apply? Some wouldn't believe without seeing. How does this apply to us? Friends, don't fear doubts. Don't fear doubts. Some of you may have doubts from time to time where you wonder whether it's all worth it and you're not sure how to answer the skeptics in your life. Or maybe you've even wondered yourself, is God really true? Something shakes you up and gets you questioning and wondering, can I trust the Bible? How can there be so much suffering in the world? When is God going to do something about it? Maybe you've had some of these doubts. For those of you who are parents, some of your children will have these doubts. And as they grow, these doubts will get more sophisticated. And my encouragement to you is don't fear those doubts. Don't rush in and give quick answers. Don't communicate unintentionally that doubts are unacceptable. Many psalms in the book of Psalms are filled with fear and with doubt. And God uses our doubts to root our faith because sometimes without the pressure of doubt, our faith wouldn't dig as deeply. So let that process happen and let allow the exploration of doubts. And by that, I don't necessarily mean to encourage people toward unbelief. I mean, just give them the freedom to doubt and to explore and help them think that through without feeling like it's a personal offense against you if they're doubting what you've taught them. But remember this too. If you have doubts, if you know others with doubts, remember that not all doubts are equal. Some doubts are sincere and hopeful, but other doubts are faithless and arrogant. Sometimes when I, when I talk to someone who's being extremely skeptical and they say, what about the problem of evil? How, how could there be a God when there's evil in the world? 
Or how could there be a God, if, if the God of Christianity is true, why are there so many different Christian denominations? Or how could there be just one true religion? In, with all the religions in the world, how could any one of those gods be true? And sometimes when I'm interacting with such people, I will ask them a question before I try to answer their questions. And I'll ask them, if I answer that question for you, will you put your faith in Christ? If there is a good answer that will answer that question, will you trust Jesus? And if the answer that they give to me is no, then I know that this question might not be a genuine question. Or maybe it's just not the main question. and Or maybe it's more of an attack disguised as a question. Or it may be even this person's last line of defense if they're on the verge of believing the truth and they just don't want to admit it. There could be lots of motivations. And so it doesn't mean that I ignore their questions, but we discuss the issue. And as we discuss it, we should be on the lookout for other concerns, trying to find out what's really hanging them up to get to the bottom of their unbelief. If you struggle with doubts, feel free. Please feel free to ask Jesus to show himself to you. And he will delight to do so. And as you ask him to show himself to you, then go ahead and read the account of him and ask for faith. Because you don't need a special encounter with Jesus. You have what you need right in this book. God is speaking to you and he is showing Jesus to you on every page. And so in verse 28, Thomas The way John tells the story, Thomas doesn't even need to touch Jesus, but he answers Jesus with his quick confession, my Lord and my God. And this statement is the climax of the entire gospel. My Lord and my God. Thomas recognizes Jesus as his master, his Lord, and he recognizes Jesus as his God. This is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament that Jesus is God. It's in the, on the lips of Thomas, and Jesus doesn't say, no, no, don't worship me. I'm, I'm just a messenger. But Jesus accepts it. My Lord and my God. And may our doubts lead us to the same place, to see Jesus as our Lord and our God. So many saw and believed. Some wouldn't believe without seeing. Finally, blessed are those who don't see, but still believe. Verses 29 to 31. Blessed are those who don't see but still believe. In verse 29, Jesus pronounces a blessing. And here Jesus is talking to you and to me. He says first to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he talks about us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. That means they have special favor from God. They have special treatment. They are highly honored and valued and nurtured. Children, how many of you have seen Jesus with your own eyes? Has Jesus ever come up to you and said, look, here are my hands. Here's my side. Have you seen him? No, you haven't seen him. But do you believe? Why do you believe? How do you know Jesus is alive? We talked about it before because he says it in the Bible. We have here the testimony of those who saw Jesus. And 
children and everybody. Jesus blesses you. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about us. He's talking about those who trust in him. It was very important to Jesus to show himself to the disciples. He wanted to provide eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And then he sent them out with a message of resurrection and forgiveness. And the apostles' testimony is sufficient for us to believe. In fact, for those of you who have not seen Jesus, but have believed the testimony of the apostles, you are blessed by God. You don't need special visions of Jesus. You don't need to pray harder and feel God come closer to you. You don't need him to speak any further word to you. The message of these 11 apostles was so important that John himself decided to write the whole thing down for us. That's why right out of this blessing for those who have not seen and have believed, John goes on to say, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. John is writing to people that he knows will not see Jesus. You will not get to see Jesus. But I wrote these things down for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the only one sent by God to deal with our alienation and our despair. And John wants us to believe and have life in his name. John doesn't want to bog us down. He doesn't want to make life hard. He wants to free us up and improve our well-being and give us life, not just for today, but forever, for eternity with God. Friends, if you believe these things about Jesus, then you finally see the world clearly. You see the world clearly. Believing is seeing. You haven't shut your eyes to reality. Faith is not a process of shutting your eyes, making yourself blind, and jumping off the cliff. That's not what faith is about. Faith is about opening your eyes to what is true so that you can move forward in the truth and receive what is true. How does this apply to us? Brothers and sisters, you are now part of this message. As Jesus was sent by the Father, so he sent his disciples. He entrusted them with a message of forgiveness and they passed it on to others who passed it on to others who passed it on to others day after day after day after year after year after century after century after century all the way down to today in State College, Pennsylvania where you have heard the message that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who was accepted by God on your behalf. Now you have a mission. You are sent by Jesus, just as he was sent by the Father. You have a message of peace and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin. And that message you have to go to the world. It's peace and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins for those who believe that Jesus Christ is their life. And get this. If you withhold that message from people, you are retaining their sins from being forgiven. Let me repeat that. If you withhold that message from people in your life, you are the one who is retaining 
their forgiveness. You are preventing them from having life. But if you preach that message, if you share it and they believe, you can declare to them that God will forgive their sins and have life. They can have life and be with God forever. There is this idea floating around today pretty commonly. It's something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Have you heard that? Some have attributed this statement to Francis of Assisi. But the, the, the quote, the, the citation is verified. We don't know if he really said that or not. But uh, a few weeks ago at a conference, I heard John MacArthur mention this quote. And he said, I hesitate to attribute this quote to anybody because it is stupid. <laughs> and I don't want to embarrass someone who may have even said it. Always use words. John MacArthur said it to me a few weeks ago. I now say it to you because the Lord says it to us in his word. Always use words. The message is a message about forgiveness. People cannot be saved by looking at flowers and doing good for their fellow man. And the message should be accompanied by telling people of the beauty of flowers and who made those flowers. It should be accompanied by doing good for our fellow men. But always use words. John cared about the words. The words about the word of God who came to dwell with man and forgive our sins. And he wrote a book to this end so that you could believe and have life. What would God have you do? to get this message out. Let's pray.